Welcome back to the Bioinformatics and Beyond podcast. I'm Leo Elworth, and I'm joined today again by Dr. Kyle Frischkorn, who is a senior editor at Nature Communications, handling manuscripts at the intersection of earth science and biology. Before Dr. Frischkorn pursued a career in the publishing realm, he got a PhD in microbial oceanography from the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory of Columbia University and conducted postdoctoral research at the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris, France. Today, we're going to talk about some of his work, and in particular, we'll be discussing his most recent first author paper involving both transcriptomics and proteomics. Dr. Frischkorn's previous research used genomic techniques to study phytoplankton and their role in geochemical cycles. Thanks again for joining, Dr. Frischkorn. It's a pleasure to be back. So the first thing I'd like to ask before we get into the study real quick, and I think we kind of covered this in the last episode, but just to be sure, do editors typically stay fairly active scientifically, like actually actively contributing to research project? My, my assumption here, and I think from last time, the answer is no, but do you sometimes see actively publishing editors? So I would say for full-time editors, it's hard to straddle both sides. There's, there's nothing stopping you from doing research, but because being, being an editor and handling manuscripts is a full-time job, it's hard to work up the energy and enthusiasm to start writing your own paper after you've spent all day reading other people's papers. Of course, there are always lingering projects that take a long time to wrap up. So I still have projects that I started during my PhD that other people have taken over or projects from my postdoc that are still somewhere in the pipeline that I'm helping out with. But I'm, I think the, the vast majority of editors that I know don't continue to come up with their own research projects and carry those out. All right, so getting into your study, there's two, I would say, key components that we're going to talk a lot about, which are transcriptomics and proteomics. Now, we've talked a little bit, I think, about transcriptomics previously, talking about like analyzing SARS-CoV-2 um, sequence data from patients. But can you just give us a, maybe a refresher? And I'd like to go through the basics of both of these again. Um, so let's just start with transcriptomics. So what is transcriptomics exactly? Yeah, I like to think about the, the central dogma and think about it sort of like the genome is the cookbook. It's everything that you could possibly do if, if given, given the opportunity, everything that's in your arsenal. And then the transcriptome is sort of like the recipe cards that you're pulling out at a given time. So on Thanksgiving, you're pulling out a particular set of recipes. If you're and an, an organism in a particular environment, you are turning on a different subset of genes, depending on where you are, what's going on around you, what you're eating, etc. And then the proteins are the, the part that's actually doing the work. It's the, the finished product. So going from everything in your arsenal to the enzymes and proteins that are actually doing the work. Um, so transcriptomics, and metatranscriptomics is basically sequencing all of the RNA, messenger RNA, that is in a sample, whether that's one organism or a group of organisms in a bucket of seawater that you might take off of a boat. Great. And I'd love to talk a little bit about how the technology actually 
works. So how, starting again with transcriptomics, how do you actually um, perform transcriptomics and how does the technology work for actually reading that out of a sample? Yeah, it's similar to doing a, a, a genome sequencing. You have to start out with cells on a filter or in a, in a little sample, and then you basically extract all of the RNA out of that sample. And it's a little bit more complicated than DNA extractions because RNA is so fragile. There are RNases all over everything that want to chew up that RNA. So you have to keep it really cold. You have to be really vigilant about de-RNASing all of your equipment, your pipettes, your hands, the hood, because if you, if you look at it cross-eyed, it'll get degraded. And then you basically send that off to a sequencing facility to, to be sequenced on an Illumina machine or, or whatever. And then um, just, like, just like with DNA, you get those, get those reads back and then you put it together like a jigsaw puzzle. Depending on whether you're sequencing something from a eukaryote or a community of bacteria, um, how you put together those RNA reads will be a little bit different because messenger RNA and eukaryotes will be spliced together. So it's a little bit harder to map to a genome because you have introns and exons. But for bacteria and archaea, they they don't have um, they don't have that problem. So it's a little bit easier to map those assembled RNA reads back to a bacterial genome and figure out the identity of what what genes you're looking at. So the the power of transcriptomes and metatranscriptomes is that it gives you a snapshot of what those organisms or organism was physiologically trying to do at that moment in time where you take a sample, as opposed to the genome, like I said, that's the cookbook. It's everything that it could possibly be doing, but you don't know what genes are turned on or off at any particular time. Yeah, great explanation. Thank you for that. Final question on the transcriptomics, just because I have a personal interest and I'm kind of curious about it myself, is there's like different ways of doing this, right? So for instance, you could do like, is it just usually called quote unquote, like total RNA versus like more targeted types of RNA that you could do? And, and how does that work exactly? You can, you can sequence all of the RNA in your sample. You can also target specifically eukaryotic RNA, and you can do that by doing what's called a poly-A selection. So eukaryotic mRNA has that poly-A cap on the end of it, and you can basically use that like a magnet to select for all of the eukaryotic only RNA on a column, and then the bacterial RNA without that poly-A cap will filter right on through. And so you can separate out those two communities in, in that way. And you can use DNases or RNases to get rid of the one or the other before you sequence. So yeah, those are different ways that you can you can select. Um, you also have to get rid of the rRNA. So the ribosomal RNA, they make commercial kits to, to degrade those because you don't want to just sequence all of the ribosomes that are in your sample because that would completely skew the other genes that are turned on.
Okay, let's go to proteomics now. How does proteomics work exactly, like versus sequencing or RNA sequencing? So proteomics, some, some parts about it are a little bit simpler and some parts are a little bit more complicated. So in terms of actually getting the proteins out of your sample, that's, that's relatively um, more straightforward. Heat them up, agitate them, put in some chemicals, and you've, you've got your proteins, which are pretty uh, shelf-stable relative to RNA. And then you have those proteins, you denature them into chains of amino acids, and then you digest those into smaller, more manageable bits, and then you run that on a mass spectrometer. So instead of like RNA or DNA sequencing, when you get out um, basically a read file that says, you know, A, T, G, and C over and over again, for proteins, you get a mass spectra, the mass and the charge of, of those amino acids. And then to put those back together, it's helpful to have a roadmap, either an assembled genome or a, an assembled transcriptome that enables you to sort of back calculate the sequence of amino acids that you glean from that mass spectra back to what the identity of those genes actually are. So you can do de novo assemblies of metatranscriptomes or metagenomes and put those puzzles back together without a starting image that you know you're trying for. But for proteins and proteomics, it's a little bit harder. You need a roadmap for what you're trying to get back to, to identify what those proteins are. Okay. But, but essentially at the end of the day, the, the files you're getting back are, are pretty much just like reads more or less of just amino acids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When it comes to proteomics, uh, this is something I, I have very limited, limited experience with basically none. A lot of places have like sequencing cores at universities and there seems like there's a lot of place you can send to and even do in-house a lot of time because it's like so ubiquitous with proteomics. Is it easy to get it done? Like, are there a lot of places that will do proteomics for you? There are core facilities at universities. I think I, if memory serves, I did all of my protein sequencing at a facility at the University of California, Davis, and they specialize in, in doing all of that for you. So there are core facilities that can help you out and they have um, great standardized methods that they'll use and even do the preliminary analyses for you and it, you can just pay them to do that. But they are probably, f I would guess, fewer and farther between than um, sequencing facilities for DNA or RNA, which um, probably most universities have one of those sequencing facilities. All right, let's get into your study further now. Can you give us a sense for the motivation of the study that you did and like a high level just description of the study? Sure, yeah. So the, the motivation for um, really all of biological oceanography, microbial oceanography, I would say is, you know, most people know that planet Earth is actually planet ocean. 70% of, of Earth's surface is actually ocean, the rest being land. But one fact that maybe fewer people know is that the ocean is hugely important for the 
chemistry of our planet and making our planet a habitable place. So about 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, 50% of the primary productivity that happens on Earth takes place in the ocean. So every other breath of oxygen that you take, you can thank a phytoplankton, a microscopic plant that lives out in the ocean. So trees are really only half of half of that story. And it's these microbes that live in the ocean that we know relatively little about. And so the, the motivation for my, for my research um, was to figure out how these organisms work together, how they interact with the chemistry of the ocean, and how really um, how they do what they do, and how that will be influenced by climate change and the climate. So the organism that I focused on was this particular cyanobacterium, so a photosynthetic bacteria called trichodesmium. And this organism had been, had been known about for a really, really long time. It's what the Red Sea is named after. Blooms of this trichodesmium colored the, the Red Sea red. So they've known about it for a long time. Darwin looked down at it when he was crossing the ocean and wrote about it in, in his diaries. But they, it wasn't until the 60s that they realized why this organism um, was so important. And they figured out that it is able to fix nitrogen. So out where it lives in the middle of the ocean, nutrients are really few and far between. So there's not a lot of fertilizer that enables these microscopic plants to grow. But trichodesmium is able to take dinitrogen gas from the atmosphere and then turn that into ammonium and basically be its own little fertilizer factory. And that is how it is making its own nutrients that it needs to grow and photosynthesize. And they've done some back of the envelope calculations and figured out that trichodesmium is responsible for a huge proportion of the biologically available nitrogen that's in the ocean. So not only are they fueling themselves, but they are releasing some of this fixed nitrogen into the surrounding water and enabling other critters to grow as well. And of course, that all comes back to these organisms that are taking in a lot of CO2 from the atmosphere, producing oxygen, and they're really the gears that are keeping our planet churning. So as you can see, I'm very passionate about marine microbes and the importance that they have. And so that's really the, the motivation for for my work and this project that sort of opens up the hood and figures out how these organisms are making a living. Yeah, maybe real quick, fixing nitrogen, this is something that just seems to come up so often everywhere. And it, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, again, that's turning, like you said, dinitrogen, so like N2, turning it into just N, basically, right? Or turning it into a form that is biologically available, so ammonium, NH3. Yeah. And why is that so important again, exactly? Well, dinitrogen gas has a triple bond. So it's relatively, it's for most organisms, biologically inert. But we need nitrogen to, biological organisms need nitrogen to do so much to make proteins, etc. But there are, you know, relatively few, few um, organisms that are able to turn that nitrogen gas that's you know hugely abundant in the atmosphere very few organisms are able to 
do that themselves. You know, rock weathering, um, lightning strikes, that can turn uh, nitrogen gas into biologically available nitrogen, but there are very few organisms that can do it themselves. And so that's why it's so important. Okay, gotcha. And so you basically wanted to see for this particular species, like kind of what triggers it to do this and just just the full chemistry of of how this happens and like based on its environment and surroundings and, and things like that. Is that about right? In, in fact, when I was reading through the paper and I'm uh, a little bit out of my element here, but I'm going to try here. I, I think you wanted to see the effect of varying the levels of phosphorus and how that factored into how much nitrogen it was fixing. Yeah, exactly. So trichodesmium never has to worry about nitrogen because they can just fix it themselves. And there is, they're, they're never ever going to run out of atmospheric dinitrogen gas. But that means they have to worry about other critical nutrients that they need. And phosphorus is the other macronutrient, this critical fertilizer that, these, that all plants need to grow. Um, and some of the environments in the middle of the ocean where trichodesmium lives are really low in phosphorus. So they are somehow still able to eke out a living, even though the amount of phosphorus in the North Atlantic um, by the Bermuda Triangle, for example, are sometimes below the limit of detection. And so some of the, the more specific motivation for our work is figuring out how they are able to survive in such low phosphorus conditions. Okay, so then what did you want to do exactly to tackle this? So why don't you go ahead and just describe kind of the steps of the study. You went out maybe on the ocean, kind of collected this up, and then basically decided to understand it, you would do the transcriptomics and, and proteomics. And I think you mentioned something called enzyme activity assays, maybe as like a third piece of the puzzle. Yeah, so unfortunately for this project, we I did not get to go to the ocean. This was done in the lab on a strain of trichodesmium, the, the type strain that had its genome sequenced. And this um, was an organism that was collected off the coast of North Carolina in the 90s. So this is really as close to a lab rat as you can get for biological oceanography. Um, so it's, it's the strain that everyone has in the lab who studies trichodesmium. And the goal here was really to figure out what are the what are the best practices for how we can study trichodesmium in the environment, in the middle of the ocean, if you were to go out on a boat using omics techniques? So, you know, we have a huge interest in what genes these organisms are using to survive in the ocean. Um, the, the best way to figure out what they're doing out there is to look at what genes they have which ones they're turning on or off in different environments, and then sort of inferring which proteins they're, they're making and how that's enabling their physiology to, to respond to the environment. And it was relatively unknown whether it's better to use transcriptomics and look at the genes, or is it more accurate to look at proteins? So for this organism, that hadn't been answered yet. So we decided to look at the phosphorus genes, the phosphorus responsive genes of this organism, because that's so important in the field where this organism grows. Yep. And this is 
this is really cool. And let me actually just quote a line from the paper that I feel like maybe kind of sums this up. You said, it has been widely observed that mRNA and protein levels for specific genes are not always well correlated, leading to potentially disparate biological interpretations depending on the data products used. Does that kind of summarize a lot of what you're saying and you wanted to see which one's sort of better for doing this? Yeah, I couldn't have written that better myself. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so if, if, you go, if you go out into on a research vessel into the middle of the ocean and, and you take a sample and you know, you're setting up this experiment and you're trying to figure out how are these organisms responding to increasing CO2 or surface ocean conditions that are getting warmer or current patterns that are changing, you know, you're, you're, you're taking these samples of organisms that we know really little about, and then you're sequencing their, their DNA or their RNA. And then you look at that. What you really want to know is, are these genes or proteins really an accurate snapshot of what these organisms are doing in the field? So if you see, for example, a suite of nitrogen fixation genes turning on, does that actually mean that they are fixing more nitrogen? Because you've, you've just seen the genes being turned on, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were turning those genes into proteins, into the nitrogenase enzyme that's doing the work. Would it be better to um, sequence the proteins instead? Or are these proteins sort of like uh, just hanging around even though they're not in use anymore, just waiting to be degraded by the cell? So the, the goal for this was to figure out what's the best thing we can be looking at, proteins or um, RNA, to figure out in a given environment, at a given time, what is this organism actually doing? Yeah, perfect. And so I think we can just go ahead and get right into the results then. So what did you find? What, what would you say were the main findings um, of the paper and maybe the, the conclusion of that main question there? Yeah, so to, to do that, we started in the lab and we grew cultures of trichodesmium in very large bottles in incubators that keep them at the at the conditions that they would experience in the middle of the ocean. And in some of these bottles, we um, grew them in replete, full nutrient conditions, the, the control, essentially. And in some of the bottles, we starved them for phosphorus. So we gave them everything else that they needed, but we didn't add in any phosphorus. And the goal of that was to get them to, to this starvation condition and with the hopes that they would turn on the suite of genes that they use to survive in those low phosphorus conditions in the ocean. And then after they were growing and feeling stressed for phosphorus, we took a subset of that low phosphorus bottle and then we added back in the, the replete levels of phosphorus to relieve them of that phosphorus stress. And at all different time points throughout their growth, we were taking samples for RNA samples to um, look at all the genes they were turning on, protein samples to look at what proteins they were making, and we also did enzyme assays. So that was a way to use um, fluorescently labeled substrates for different phosphorus enzymes, and then actually be able to measure 
the activity of those proteins or, or enzymes in the samples. And so with that phosphorus addback experiment, the goal was to look at whether they are turning off their, their transcripts for those low phosphorus genes or whether they are degrading those proteins. So basically to, to figure out when are these genes most responsive and which technique would be best to use to figure out what they're actually doing at any given place and time. Yeah, that's really cool. And what, uh, what did you end up finding? So we found that as, as we sort of expected, when they reach those low phosphorus conditions, so they're getting really hungry for phosphorus, um, right away, they turn on all of the, the genes for the suite of low phosphorus responses um, that we know that they have. So they would normally prefer to use phosphate, inorganic phosphorus, but under low P conditions, they turn on genes that enable them to break apart more complex um, recalcitrant organic phosphorus. So they turn on all of those genes, and we also see a little bit lagged behind, those proteins start to get expressed as well. What we found though, that was really interesting is when we added phosphorus back into the cultures, right away, within a matter of hours, they, they turn off the expression of those genes, but the proteins linger. Um, so they're not degrading these proteins right away. And the enzyme activity slowly starts to go down. So even though these organisms are no longer stressed out for phosphorus, they've moved on to worrying about different things. Those proteins are still persisting in the cells um, and they, they're not being degraded very quickly. So what this was an indication of is that um, even for a couple of days, this protein signal sticks around. And so if you you know, things change really rapidly in the ocean. You have a windy day that's um, whipping up nutrients from deeper in the ocean, hundreds of meters down, sun conditions, um, temperature, blooms of other phytoplankton. It's a really dynamic and volatile place. So if you were to go out on your boat and take a sample, if you only sequenced the proteins, that might not be the the most accurate representation of the physiological state of trichodesmium or other organisms in that sample. So from our results, we determined that um, if you wanna know what's going on, at least in terms of phosphorus stress, your best bet is to sequence the transcripts. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so in some sense, there's kind of harmony between the two methods in that you did see kind of similar things happening between the two, which you sort of expect, but but then there's also sort of discord in the sense of what you're describing of the proteins are just kind of lingering around a, perhaps a bit too long, depending on like the question that you want to ask. Exactly. Yeah. We saw this, we, we were calling it the choreography experiment because we were interested in this sort of like a dance between the transcriptome and the proteome and who leads and, and who follows. So I mean, I'm not discounting proteomics. There are some really interesting questions that that can answer that transcriptomics can't. But if you are really interested in 
what the snapshot of their physiology is at that exact time. If you're looking at the proteins, that might also give you a snapshot of um, what they were feeling several days ago. So it might not be the best choice for answering the question at hand. So in conclusion, is it fair to say you uh, learned some exciting new biology for the organism? It sounds like these are things that had never been done before that you that you learned and, and then sort of came to your conclusion as far as transcriptomics, let's say, versus proteomics. I'd like to think so, yeah. What about the enzyme activity assays? Where, where did that fact... Where does that factor into like the final conclusion of the interplay between like the three instead of just the two different types of methods? Oh yeah, that's a great question. So even though we saw the, so the, the proteomic analysis doesn't distinguish between proteins that are active and proteins that are, have been degraded or, or, or don't, don't work anymore. So we're interested, you know, in, in the fact that these organisms are using these proteins, these enzymes to do work and change their physiology and change, change the chemistry of the surrounding water. So when you do proteomics, like we said at the beginning, you're just doing um, a mass spectral analysis of the amino acid little chunk. The, the protein's already degraded. It can't tell you anything about whether this protein was working or not. So what we saw when we compared the proteomic analysis, the protein sequencing, is that those levels stayed relatively constant for days after the phosphorus was added back. But if we look at the enzyme activity analysis, those, um, that activity started to drop more quickly than the, the actual levels of that protein. And that indicated that these enzymes were slowly by the cells being degraded. So the, we added back phosphorus and trichodesmium said, you know, we don't need these low phosphorus genes anymore. So let's recycle these amino acids to use for something else. So even though we still detected these proteins through proteomics, they actually weren't as functional anymore because they were being degraded because they were no longer needed. Okay. Based on all this, here's the final question I'd like to wrap up with. Let's say you had someone out there who was going to do a study and they were wondering, should I use transcriptomics? Should I use proteomics of all the different methods, maybe even DNA sequencing, enzyme activity assays, things like that. How would you how, how would you answer that question to someone who's not sure which of all the different methods to use? I would say, first of all, find a very rich funder who is going to enable you to do all three, DNA, RNA, and protein. Um, that would be my first cheeky bit of advice. But then I would say it depends on what question you are trying to ask and what, what the ultimate goal is that you're trying to figure out about the environment or the system that you're working in. Transcripts work really well to get that exact snapshot of everything that the cell is doing, but proteins can give you a more targeted look at sort of the, the, the long-term, more holistic physiology of that organism. Well, that's all the time that we've got for this episode, but uh, Dr. Firstcorn, thank you so much again for taking the time and, and explaining all, all of this. These were really great explanations. I actually learned a lot. So, so thank you for teaching us all of this and, and really interesting work that you've been, that you were doing. 
Thank you. Yeah, it was great to be here. Relive my glory days. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I hope you found it interesting. If you did, if you learned something new and you enjoyed the show, I'd love to hear about it on Twitter. You can join the conversation and keep up with the newest episodes and past guests by following at bioinfopod. Feel free to tweet at the show or send a DM about anything you liked, didn't like, who or what you'd like to see next, questions for future guests, or just chat about all things bioinformatics and, of course, beyond. It really does make my day to see people share on Twitter when they found the podcast useful. So definitely keep it coming. And again, that's at bioinfopod. Finally, you can always help out by subscribing to the show, giving it a rating, or just recommending it to a friend who's interested in these topics. Thanks again, and see you next time.